Jacobson. I'm a partner at Squire Patent Boggs. And Seth, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Seth Furman. I'm a partner at Nutter. Um, and uh, in addition to that, um, I have a, a position outside of Nutter, which is I work at a company called Ethical Compass. And among other things, we advise uh, we advise social media companies on content moderation issues. So. So we have an expert. That's awesome. Okay. So we're going to do a quick introduction, a level set to make sure everyone knows what we're talking about. Probably obvious, but always good to start with the basics. And then we're going to talk about um, three laws in particular and their status with respect to uh, well, the respect to whether they're going to actually become uh, laws and enforceable. So let without further ado, so what are we talking about? We're talking about content moderation, and these are some examples of what we mean by content moderation. Uh, I'm sure that's very obvious to everyone, but I always like to think about my mom. She would not know about this. So um, the removing the post, we're all familiar with that. Adding a warning label, um, upsetting to users, not for kids, and then promoting content in a way that will make, make it more likely that a user will discover it. Sort of the algorithmic promotion of content is an example of that. And I think it's worth emphasizing actually the third of those three, because in some ways that actually is the one that may be least obvious at the moment you think about it. And that is, uh, for better or for worse, the secret sauce of social media companies is like, how do you get users content that the users will find engaging? That is literally what they're selling, um, or at least what they're trying to buy from you is your user engagement in return for which they're going to sell advertisements to other people. Um, so this gets to the very core of what they do. Thank you. Oh, perfect. So here we are talking about some some of the techniques used for um, for moderating. So there's an independent advisory board at, uh, at Meta slash Facebook. Uh, that's one example. Um, there are teams of individuals who review content for compliance with community standards or usage policies. Uh, and an example of that would be the, um, the group that was at Twitter, but no longer is. There was a pretty uh, well-publicized departure of some of the uh, empl Twitter employees who were responsible for re reviewing content. So that'd be sort of an example of that. Um, algorithmic content review, uh, again, uh, picking up on what Seth just said, this would be um, a, a machine learning tool that will go look for bad words or words that might uh, imply um, sex trafficking or child pornography, and then user complaints. Uh, another great way for moderation, it's a, it's a pass, more of a passive uh, moderation technique, but responding to them, validating them, that also brings in a bunch of other laws that we're not going to talk about today. But this is, we're talking about the content you know, the moderation and how the moderation gets done. That's going to be the crux of what we're going to talk about today. So I wanted to talk, just go back to that one for one second. So um, the uh, I want to talk just for a second about the upper left-hand corner, the, uh, the Facebook Oversight Board. Um, so it, first of all, it gives you a sense of how long this problem has been going on for. Um, before this became the political football we're going to talk about today, um, Facebook, uh, back then, it was before it was meta, Facebook 
was really struggling with how they can fairly decide who should and shouldn't be put on the platform um, and how they uh, either kick people off or censor people um, or whatever. And ultimately, it's worth remembering that the reason they do this is not primarily because they have an ideological agenda. It's because they have a business agenda, which is to keep people on the platform as much as possible so they can sell advertising. Um, and they uh, that's really their goal. Um, in addition to that, there are some legal requirements that they actually pull stuff off, like copyright infringement. Um, but ultimately, what they're trying to do is make your experience on Facebook or whatever it is to be at least enjoyable enough, enjoyable might be the wrong word, sticky enough that you're going to stay and you're going to watch the ads that come alongside the content. That's their actual goal. And content moderation is a necessary part of that, partly because it's part of the algorithm of how they show you what they're gonna show you so you stay on. And partly because what they found fairly quickly is that if you completely have no barriers, uh, these things uh, ultimately descend fairly quickly into uh, what I think someone memorably called uh, like a hellhole of Nazis, pornography, and threats. And no one wants to be on that. So that's why content moderation came into existence. People have been struggling with it from the moment it came into existence. Um, and uh, and it has become a political football, which is where we'll get to in a minute. Exactly. And, and we this is no different than the offline world. So again, we've always struggled with um, protected speech. So uh, as Seth mentioned, user safety, user enjoyment, brand safety, and the basic legal requirements, that's why the, mo the content moderation is there. I think it's also worth noting um, for uh, just as a point of reference that even the social media platforms that were designed to uh, uh, to get around some of the content restrictions that arose. Uh, let's just, I'm going to use the insurrection, uh, January 6th, as the, uh, the point at which some of this came about. Even those new platforms have content moderation. It's just, it's all a matter of degree. And again, what's put in these algorithms. So it's scaling, it's, um, and it's, and it's what's part of the algorithm that does the content moderation. So I think it's important to note that there is not currently a free-for-all publicly available social media platform that I'm aware of. They're all moderating something because they have obligations under uh, federal law not to do certain things like uh, promote sex trafficking. So Seth. Why don't you talk to us about how this became so politicized? Yes, well, I mean, the short answer is everything's political, but the um, but the roots of it actually go back um, like like so much to the 2020 election and um, I'm sorry, the 2016 election and um, and the sort of sense that somehow Facebook had played a role in everything that had happened. Um, there were scandals around, there were a bunch of scandals around uh, Facebook and whether or not Facebook uh, had uh, illegally uh, shared content, shared user information, um, and uh, whether or not it was sort of too loose in allowing false statements or, um, you know, other kinds of misinformation on the platform. This uh, then ramped up substantially in 2020, as Julia mentioned, um, particularly with the January 6th 
uh, insurrection, at which point, essentially within hours of each other, all of the major platforms stripped Trump of his place on the platforms. Um, and that there was already a, a fairly significant right wing backlash in place, but that like really um, pushed hard on, our, on a backlash amongst conservatives who felt that they were being discriminated against on the platform. That's the words they use. Um, and that um, the the interesting thing for what it's worth is that I think actually at this point, both sides think that the platforms favor the other side um, and uh, each has their reasons for thinking so. Um, but it is at the moment, at least it's conservative legislatures that have taken the lead in trying to uh, do something about what they perceive as the um, the unfair treatment of conservative voices on the platforms. Um, and uh, and they have started passing laws um, which uh, which purport to deal with that. And I also think it's worth noting that these laws that we're going to talk about, the they are explicitly the the governors uh, that in the states that we're going to talk about have explicitly said the the sort of what we would call the social media platforms. We'll get back to it, the commonly um, held understanding of what is social media. They're silencing conservatives. You know, I think that was uh, Governor DeSantis' exact words that the that some of these laws that we're going to talk about are because people felt silenced. So I think, um, you know, it is political whether we uh, want it to be or not. And we should pause and say there are a few specific instances where people have felt silenced. Uh, a lot of it related to COVID, um, which also supersized this problem. Yeah. Um, and people really felt that some of the restrictions on um, on uh, content around what is and what isn't a COVID treatment uh, discriminated against conservatives um, who uh, often felt things different from what the CDC thought was an appropriate thing to do. Um, and then in addition to that, uh, there has been a huge brouhaha about Hunter Biden's laptop and whether or not there was an effort to suppress that and who was responsible for suppressing that if it was suppressed. Um, so all of those things kind of played into this view that somehow the social media platforms are too powerful and that they're putting the weight on the scale um, on behalf of Democrats. And yes, and they're too, that they, the perception is that they're too liberal. I mean, that's that's exactly right. And so I think uh, that's where we're, you know, conservatives and liberals. All right, so now we're going to pivot to talking about these two state content moderation laws that are, I guess I would call them infamous right now. We have Florida and Texas, uh, notably two states that tend to be more on the conservative end of the spectrum, not surprisingly, for reasons you will soon learn. So Florida has a social media platform law that was signed May 2021 by Governor DeSantis. And again, was specifically in the press release, I think announcing he specifically said um, that this was to make sure that conservatives have a place to be heard. Um, so these just getting a little bit into the nitty gritty of what these laws uh, do and maybe some of the operational challenges if if and when they go into force. So we've got a social media platform is an information system, internet search engine or access software provider. That's a pretty big uh defined term. And it could pull in a lot more technology businesses, but the $100 million gross revenue and 100 million users globally clearly 
um, targets the big tech or the big platforms. So without those uh, gross revenue and, and user uh, thresholds, this would be a, a really broad law that would pull in a lot of different things. Um, a user, by the way, is somebody who is a resident, you know, it's a divine term, of course, is a resident of Florida and who has an account. So if you don't have an account, you are not a user. Um, and you can, if you have an account, and even if you don't post stuff, you're considered a user, just for what it's worth. Notably, there is an exclusion for um, for these information services that were operated by a company that owns and operates a theme park or an entertainment complex. Uh, that was repealed, um, perhaps not coincidentally, at about the time that uh, that Disney and the governor of Florida uh, had a little public uh, disagreement or spat. Uh, so this used to be an exclusion. It's repealed. Uh, but I think it's worth noting, again, supporting this politicization of the, um, the law. These are some of the requirements. So the Florida law is slightly different from the Texas law that um, Seth will talk about. So it's really uh, wants to protect candidates from being deplatformed, um, censored. It's focused. There's one section of it that's specifically focused on candidates for office. And that particular section is enforced not by the attorney general, but by the election commission. So there's sort of a law within a law. And then um, some of the other notable uh, uh, fact features of this law is users can opt out of certain content moderation practices, um, the algorithmic moderation practices primarily. Um, this next one, they have to apply content moderation standards in a consistent manner. Uh, of course, that's not defined. So we have no idea what a consistent manner means, um, again, free speech and uh, rights and the appropriateness of context of content is context specific. So this consistency in a consistent manner is uh, a little bit uh, too mushy for my taste personally. Um, this next one that the social media platform can only change their user rules, terms and agreements once every 30 days. So before we started this webinar, Seth and I were talking about this and I thought, wait a minute, they're implying that the, the terms of use or whatever user agreement might be changed every 30 days. Uh, I don't, you know, this is sort of almost, is that permissive? They can do it every 31st day or is something else going on here? I think this was really more at the content moderation standards, but uh, again, this is sort of a unilateral right uh, of the platforms not being able to change their agreements every 30 days, but it doesn't talk about, you know, sort of consent and re-agreement to them. And then a private right of action, um, everybody's uh, favorite topic, uh, one of the some of, uh, often an obstacle to getting a law passed is the availability or not or inavailability of a private right of action. So this is kind of the Florida, uh, the Florida law overview, and I am going to turn it over to Seth for the Texas law. 
Okay, so Texas around the same time passed a somewhat similar law, although um, different in important ways. So the Texas law actually has a somewhat better and clearer definition of what a social media platform is. Um, whether or not this will stand the test of time, I think is an interesting question. Um, one of the problems we've had throughout the history of passing laws about computer services is that the computer services morph faster than the law. And you always end up with these orphan definitions that no longer apply, no longer exactly match anything in the real world. But anyway, for the moment, at least, this seems to describe a uh, uh, an, a a social media company and not other things. Um, and then the next slide, Julia, if you don't mind. Um, okay, so here's the key thing: um, it applies to any social media platform with at least 50 million active users in the United States. Um, it uh, prohibits social media companies from censoring based on viewpoint, although it doesn't really define what it means to censor based on viewpoint. Um, it's not clear whether that means you can't censor people who generally hold a particular kind of view or if any particular view, no matter how it might be, no matter what the view is, is not censorable. In other words, it'd be impossible to censor anything um, because everything is a viewpoint in some way. Um, and then uh, it, it, my favorite section of the law is that it also prohibits social medias from censoring users because they are in Texas. That is trying to get at the fear that some people raise that if you do this, that what might happen is the social media companies will say, we're just not gonna do business in Texas. So all Texans are not allowed to post here at all. So we won't have any kind of moderation in Texas. We just won't have any Texans. Um, and Texas purported to pass a law that requires effectively the social media companies to service Texas. Uh, I don't actually think that will ever get tested because I don't think they're about to walk away from Texas, but it seems hard to believe that Texas can require a company to provide services to Texans um, if they chose not to, but I don't think we'll ever get there. Next uh, next slide. Okay, so what the law actually requires um, are a few things. Some of them are about disclosure, like disclosing accurate information about how it's doing, its content moderation. Um, and some of them are about uh, notice, that there has to be notice if someone's content is removed. Um, there has to be these biannual publications with information about the removing of content. There has to be this whole appeal process. Now, it's worth reminding everyone, as we started at the beginning, the vast majority of social media content moderation is being done by algorithms. It is not being done by people. That is true both of the, like, just removing things. You know, pornography is removed from these platforms. 99% of the time without a person looking at it. Um, the same is true of any kind of child exploitation. They have sophisticated algorithms that are going through and just pulling things. They're also using keyword searches to do the same about certain things. So it is not actually always possible to explain why it is that a particular thing was removed, um, particularly as AI gets more complex, it gets harder and harder to reverse engineer why something happened. So it's not 100% clear that it's possible for the social media companies to abide by this this uh, requirement that they explain why a decision was made. It's sort of implying that a decision was made by a person when it may not have been. Um, this also has a private right of action. And then I think we go on to the next slide. Just oh. did I skip on? Nope. I so didn't. one of the interesting things is um, in, uh, I think it was in that slide before actually, it, uh, the, the ban on content moderation is not just a ban on banning content. It's a ban on treating it differently, which would, which gets into the problem of this is actually how the social media companies promote content. It's sort of up to them what content gets promoted. 
there's not really a way, an obvious way that you could require that all content be promoted equally. That would be the same as not having content promotion at all. Um, and so it's not 100% clear how, how that fits within the actual practice of what they're doing. So uh, I think, so both of these laws are sort of uh, pending. Uh, they're uh, sort of on hold pending these lawsuits. So there's a case in Florida in the 11th circuit that I'm going to talk about. And I'm giving Seth the harder one, which is the Texas case. So the uh, a group, uh, some internet uh, organizations, uh, trade essentially trade associations got together to say, hey, this law doesn't work. And they request, uh, requested a preliminary injunction and they got it. And um, then the, uh, the state of Florida appealed and the 11th Circuit uh, affirmed in part uh, not not a not allowed not from having the injunction for everything, but only for certain pieces of the law. And there's the case number in case you're interested in looking at it. I think this is a actually really nicely written opinion for what it's worth. It's a it's a nice, easy to read, not overly legalistic opinion. So uh, what the lawsuits are centered on, which is why we showed you the First Amendment a little while ago. I just have the slides out of order was that the um, 11th Circuit affirmed the view that the con that regulating the content moderation decisions, the Florida law saying, you know, thou shalt content moderate this way um, and, and thereby affecting the social media platforms exercise of their editorial ju judgment violates their free speech because they are private companies. So this uh, seemed to make sense to me. And um, I think it made sense to the district court in the 11th circuit. It was a unanimous opinion. And the um, so they agreed, you'll see here where they, the conclusion that they were going to enforce the injunction for this, um, this rationale, this editorial judgment for each and every content moderation decision they make. So we've highlighted the two kind of key um, key things that are uh, being protected about being enjoined due to the preliminary injunction. Um, and again, uh, the state of Florida uh, appealed to the Supreme Court. We'll talk about that in a second. There's the docket number. So uh, we're looking here at the courts saying these are private businesses and they have free speech rights. And they have the free and one of their free speech rights is this exercise of editorial uh, editorial judgment on their on the platforms they provide. So it um, when Seth and I were talking about this, it, this makes sense to me. I mean, I, I I I see this argument. And if we go back just for a minute to the First Amendment to the Constitution. Uh, you'll start to see uh, why some of what we, I think, makes that this um, 11th Circuit uh, opinion more right. Um, I'm not going to say the other one's wrong, but maybe more right uh, is because of the kind of what our common understanding of what the First Amendment means. So again, 
Uh, it's the editorial judgment of the platform. And they're also their obligation to provide a rationale for why they make the decision. Uh, again, if they're if these are algorithmic decisions that are made, um, anybody who's worked in the area of AI knows that uh, transparency is one of the biggest challenges, knowing what the, the increasingly sophisticated algorithms, the way that they got to making the decisions that they made. So Florida makes sense to me. So Seth, I'll turn it over. Do you have any comments on Florida? Uh, no, but why don't you go back to the First Amendment for a second, because I just want to ground this before we get to yeah. the Texas law. So, so essentially, the court's opinion in very short order is that um, this, the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law respecting free speech, abridging free speech, right? And that this law abridges the free speech of the platforms. The platforms have a free speech right. This law is telling them what they're allowed to say and what they're not allowed to say. And therefore, the law cannot hold. That's basically what the 11th Circuit said. That is consistent with First Amendment law as it has been applied for a number of years. Um, things worked out differently, as you've probably deduced, um, in the Texas law. So let's take a look at what happened in Texas. So the Texas law was appealed to the Fifth Circuit, which oversees Texas. And um, the Fifth Circuit ruled essentially exactly the opposite. It said there's nothing wrong with this law. This is its opening paragraph. In urging such sweeping relief, the platform offers a rather odd inversion of the First Amendment. That amendment, of course, protects every person's right to the freedom of speech. But the platform argues that buried somewhere in the person's enumerated right to free speech lays a corporation's unenumerated right to muzzle speech. The rest of the this opinion- This is the baffling part to me. This is the baffling part. Right. So, so the way the first, the Fifth Circuit was looking at it is that, wait, the person who has a free speech right here is the individual who's speaking. The platform is muzzling them, and therefore um, their right to free speech is being violated. Um, just, of course, on the actual wording of the First Amendment, the First Amendment doesn't say anything of the sort. Um, the First Amendment definitely does not say that everyone has a right to free speech. The First Amendment says Congress cannot pass a law abridging people's free speech but private parties presumably can. We have felt that way throughout all of American history. There have been lots of places where you weren't allowed to say certain things, even though you might be allowed to say them elsewhere. But the Fifth Circuit feels, and uh, there's some indication that some on the Supreme Court might agree, that the uh, the, stat the uh, social media platforms have become a new form of public square. And because they're part of the public square, the only way to protect citizens' rights is to force them to abide by free speech. Um, the interesting thing to think about, I think from this is it's a little bit hard for me to see how this would work in practice. If this law ever were to go into effect, this, the fifth circuit opinion has also been appealed to the Supreme court. The two cases have been consolidated and presumably the Supreme court will rule on it eventually. Um, but I'm a little unclear how, if you actually did have, uh, the states and courts, insisting on content moderation policies, how you wouldn't end up with the very first circuit, first amendment problem, I'm sorry, the very first first amendment problem they're, they purport to be trying to prevent. Because now you're actually allowing people to sue and allowing courts to enforce exactly how content moderation works, which feels like that means that the decision of state actors is going to determine exactly what's written into the platforms, which seems like almost the opposite of the free speech that they're trying to accomplish. but. Maybe it'll work differently um, than I predict. Julie, why don't we go to the next slide? 
So these so, cases have been, uh, you, you want to talk about this, Julia, go no, ahead. No, go ahead, go ahead. I, I was just saying that they, they've been uh, combined. The Solicitor General has uh, been asked to uh, file a brief. Um, and uh, I don't believe that's actually happened yet. Um, so it'll be interesting to see where do they go with that. Um, it will be interesting to see how the court rules on this and how it impacts um, content moderation. Uh, I think one of the things that Julia and I have been talking about a lot in preparation for this is if you think that having privacy, different privacy laws in different states is confusing and hard to abide by, having different content moderation laws will be infinitely worse <laughs> because privacy breaches at least what they're ultimately saying is here is certain things you're not allowed to do. Um, it is at least theoretically possible to say, okay, we're going to stick with whatever the the worst version of that, the most restrictive version is, and we should be safe everywhere. I, re I realize the details are more complicated than that, but but in some ways it's sort of true. The problem here is that these laws are are asking for the platforms to do something uh, affirmatively, and they could easily end up with wildly conflicting affirmative commitments in different states, which are actually not all possible to abide by. So you could easily imagine Massachusetts or California passing a law essentially requiring moderation, for example, on um, you know things related to the sale of AR-15s or AR-15s in children or something like that, and having Texas say that it's illegal to even consider putting on any uh, restrictions on uh, you know videos or or talk about the use of AR-15s. Um, it would become literally impossible to abide by both of them. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how this. Were these to ever go into effect? Um, what happens when uh, opposite laws start appearing uh, in blue states and how um, how anyone would even attempt to navigate that? So, couldn't, couldn't have said it any better. And I think the privacy law analogy is apt given the complete, you know, the six, now six state privacy laws and the challenges that everybody had figuring out what put in their privacy policies and whether they should get everybody rights and all that. But this, this is a whole new level of, of complexity. And remember, you can't uh, not provide your platform in Texas. So uh, you're not going to avoid the Texas law if it ever goes into effect. So now we're going to talk about, now this is not a directly the same law, but we, when we were, think, again, preparing for this, I think it brings up some of the same issues about um, unconstitutional encroachment on free speech. And actually the same internet organizations that um, have challenged the Texas law and the Florida law have also started mainly, sort of generally uh, getting ready to question this law um, for whether it's a um, un unconstitutional encroachment on free speech. So this one has a whole bunch of very interesting issues, but this is essentially allowing um, a parent to control a minor's account on a social media platform. So the they have to conduct the the Utah uh, a social media platform that has Utah residents as part of the uh, user base has to verify the age of an existing or new Utah account holder. Well, how do you know whether somebody's in Utah when you could use a VPN? Uh, you know, minors are pretty good at computers. They can spoof 
um, spoof where they're coming from. I think uh, so that's sort of one problem. And also um, verifying online is it's a nut that hasn't been completely cracked yet. Uh, COPPA, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act has a little done a little bit of verification, but it's verification of a parent. This is verifying the age of a of a of a child, right? And the you have to at the same time get parental consent. So if you are a uh, social media platform, you have to figure out whether somebody's in Utah or just decide you're going to age verify for everybody because you don't want to risk violating the law. And you're going to obtain parental consent for everyone because, again, you don't know who's in Utah and you don't know who's a minor. So, uh, you know, this this one's pretty tricky also. And then the law also prohibits uh, the minors from being on the Internet from 1030 p.m. to 630 a.m. Now, I, you know, don't know a ton of uh, minors who are going to think that's OK, but I certainly understand why the parent might uh, allow that default setting to stay. But again, it's a time zone based on IP address. And if this is handled automatically, you could see a very clever person um, changing IP addresses to be able to get online later than the 10.30 to 6.30 a.m. timeframe. And then the parent of the minor gets access to the account, gets to view all the posts and do whatever they want to change or um or get rid of the posts or the content of the minor received and sent. So uh, the minor could effectively be closed out of a social media platform uh, if they are a Utah account holder because their parent can stop them from having access to the social media platform. So Seth and I talked a little bit about the um, whether minors have free speech rights and the case law is not super crisp, but I think it, it's relatively clear that they have some, at least some uh, free speech rights. So this is, you know, is this a unconstitutional, unconstitutional encroachment, the free speech right, allowing the parent to decide what the minor's content is? I could see it. This law, I actually think, is a tiny bit um, more operationally challenging and um, perhaps um, could uh, have an impact, uh, a social impact beyond uh, merely preventing access to social media, but also cutting uh, kids off from information that they might need and might not be able to get through other sources. So I don't know about all of you, but I'm wildly reliant on the internet of, for sources of information. And I think the, you know, teens are also, you know, phones everywhere. We've got little computers in our pockets. So I think this one's a little scary uh, personally, and I can see the uh, administrative complexity of it. And I, I don't think that, uh, any the people who wrote this law understand some of the, the difficulties of age verifying. So, um, Seth. So I would just add that I, I really think it's like putting aside for the moment the free speech rights of children and how this actually impacts children. Um, I wonder, depending on how that first bullet is actually enforced, uh, the verifying the age requirement in Utah, um, I actually worry that this would effectively lock out a whole lot of people 
from social media because anyone who's unable, presumably unable to verify their age as being over 18 um, can't uh, access the internet, I guess, um, in Utah, unless they can get parental consent. So imagine that you don't have a license. Um, it's not clear to me how you could, uh, if you're a social media company, how you could let that person have an account in Utah. The other thing is that there are a whole lot of people who have accounts that are anonymous. And while that may or may not be good, um, it's also not clear to me um, that, I mean, it seems like this law would wipe those away because you can't really have anonymous accounts if you're verifying the age of everyone who's on the accounts. Um, and by the same token, I'm not sure how you verify accounts that are held in the name of companies and, and a whole bunch of other ways. So it's a little bit unclear how this law could ever be uh, actually enforced um, without fundamentally changing the business structure of um, of social media companies beyond, even if you put aside the impact on children altogether, like the impact on adults, it's not clear to me that this uh, this wouldn't radically impact the way adults um, would interact with the social media companies in Utah. And privacy issues. I mean, for those of you who are privacy lawyers or deal with privacy, the social media platform now has to collect a whole bunch of information and that it might not want have previously collected and then has obligations to protect it. And the more information you have, the better uh, target for uh, fraudsters you are. So there's kind of a privacy and cybersecurity issue embedded in here as well. Um, and just one kind of aside, Maryland, uh, the Maryland House, I believe, recently passed a somewhat similar law. And some of these unconstitutional um, unconstitutionality challenges also were raised with respect to the California age appropriate design law, but for different reasons. So I, I think this is uh, going to end up being in the mix with these uh, these tech, the Texas and Florida laws, maybe not directly, but I certainly think it's touching on some of the same issues. So we wanted to um, provide that, raise that for you. So, uh, Seth, do you have anything else you want to add? Uh, no, I think that's it. So I there are our uh, contacts and we are giving you back a whole bunch of your time, which uh, was sort of on purpose because who doesn't like getting their uh, some of their time back in their day? So we are happy to uh, take uh, questions online or offline. And otherwise, uh, we really appreciate you uh, attending today. And we're sorry we couldn't give you some definitive answers, but this was more of an awareness raising um, session than a uh, here's what's going to happen or here's what the law says session. So, so thank you for joining us. And thank you to Seth and Julia. And with that, we will end a webinar. Thank you, everyone.